Good morning, church. My name is John. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And before we jump into this morning's service, let's bow our heads in prayer. And we're just going to pray for a couple items within the church as well, just as a pastoral prayer. One, we're, if you didn't see, Jill is back. Hey, oh. So, Jill Malanga, she has been out and just kind of dealing with long-term kind of COVID effects, so we're so glad that you are here. This is the first time, I think, since August. Uh, so praise God, so that you were back with us. Um, also, you'll notice that who, um, Pastor Justin and Annie are not with us this morning. Uh, Thursday overnight, Pastor Justin's grandmother died. Um, as she was 92 years old. Um, so they are with family, but we wanted to let you know and be praying for them. Tomorrow evening there are, uh, is the memorial service. And if you want more information, you, you can talk to myself or uh, Grace. I think we can point you in the right direction. Also not here is Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric is um, visiting a, a, a church in Austin, Texas. He was actually supposed to go in September, but sickness prevented him. And so he got rescheduled to this week. So he's in Austin preaching. So let's lift up those that are not with us uh, this morning. Um, but I just wanted to give the, those announcements and we'll be praying for some other things as well. So would you bow your head in prayer with me? Father, we... Thank you for your, your mercy and your tenderness, the ways that you lead us as our good shepherd. You are faithful. You are good and you are kind. When the sun is shining and when it is hidden from our view, your kindness and your goodness and your sovereignty remain. Father, we particularly pray for Pastor Justin and his family as they mourn the loss of his grandmother. We thank you for a long life. And to be honest, we don't know where she ultimately stood before you. We do know that she heard the gospel, but we, we do not know where her, her, her trust was at this moment. Lord, I pray that you would um, comfort the family even in this grief of loss and mourning. We pray that you would that the God of that they would know profoundly the, who, that you are the God of all comfort, and that they would draw near to you. Father, we, we pray for Pastor Eric, who is ministering in Austin. We pray that you would use him to bring your word effectively and faithfully to, to that church, that newer church that is that is that is blooming. In, in North, North Austin. So Lord, we pray that you would bless that ministry as well. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to partner in the gospel. We, we've been praying for Damien Thomas in Jamaica uh, this month. Lord, we pray that you would continue to use Damien for, for your glory and the good of your church. Lord, even as they gather this morning um, around uh, the, the town of Buff Bay, we pray that you would uh, use Damien whatever capacity to minister to God's people. Lord, I pray that you would bear fruit in his ministry and even in his own heart, that he would grow in the knowledge and wisdom of your grace and that he would minister out of the overflow. Father, we pray for the men's retreat that's coming up. Lord, I pray that it would be a really sweet time of, of fellowship with one another, of learning and, and, and studying God's word together, and then challenging one another to live that out. 
Lord, I pray that if there's even any of those people on the fence about whether or not to go, Lord, I pray that they would just lean in and say, I'll, I'll give it a try. And then they would get connected and, and, and make relationships that would, that would be not just good for them, but life-giving. Father, we, we pray for those who are suffering just long-term ailments. It is discouraging. We pray that you would have mercy upon them. We pray for those who are struggling just in, in work and in stress and in, even in their family situation. We pray that you would give them wisdom and endurance to, to look to Christ and hold fast to him and live in light of your grace each day by day. Father, we thank you for all those that are bearing life in their, in their wombs. There are a bunch of expecting mothers. We, we pray for them that you would give them health and strength and endurance even as the, and that they would carry the babies to term. And we would, not only would they celebrate with new life into their family, but that we would celebrate with them the gift of your grace, the gift of, of new life that we would encourage them, that we would uh, remind them that we're not just there to congratulate them, but they're also there to stand with them and encourage them and walk with them and help them. And we pray that even as we, we just go through our daily lives, that we would be cognizant of, of what you are doing around us, as well as how you may invite us to step in to lives of others, to be your hands and your feet, for your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the movie Back to the Future, the first one, when Doc Brown reveals his DeLorean-turned-time machine, the celebration is cut short by the arrival of Libyans. Right? Doc Brown had apparently had to do some underhanded tactics in order to get the needed power supply for his time machine. So when this angry group arrives, Doc Brown famously says, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. This is the exact sentiment I have when I look in the mailbox at my house or even here and I find a magazine from my alma mater, York College of Pennsylvania. <laughs> the mail seems innocent enough. The college magazine with a letter from the president a cultural series on campus, alumni news of those who are crushing it in life. But what they're really sending out is a request for more money. And to paraphrase the comedian John Mulaney, I already paid you. It's your fault you already spent it. Our relationship is over. Kirsten and I often listen to NPR. You can judge away, that's okay. This past week, was their pledge week. And if you listen to the NPR, it is them begging for money for the entire day. There was a line years ago during the pledge week that Kirsten and I heard, and the host was saying, are you a fan or are you a friend of NPR? Fans simply tune in while friends support the station. Kirsten and I looked at each other and said, we're just fans. If you give to your alma mater or if you, have, you, you, you support public radio, good on you. But in each of the Giving Tuesday drives or pledge weeks, the tactics that motivate often boil down to emotional manipulation 
or personal incentives. You know, you got the NPR bumper sticker or the New Yorker tote bag. Whatever it is, you get, when it gets bigger and you're given, you get a name on the building. This week, as we continue in our series, Life in the Family of God, we, we, we are considering what it means to give cheerfully. Our commitment says this. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. In other words, I get the money talk this morning. Let me just say from the jump that if we think about it that way, it's just the money talk, it's the giving talk, it's the pledge week talk. It's weird. And it's easily be turned off. And I'm, I'm, I'm turned off by that type of language. Some of you may have had a strange situation or awkward situation in churches that you've grown up with in about how giving was manipulated or taken advantage of or, or used for someone's own um, enrichment. A guy I met... Uh, years ago, who grew up in a Catholic church, said that in, in the church, in the, in the sanctuary area, on the wall, they had all the family names of all the parishioners and how much they gave each week. There's a word for that, gross and unbiblical. We're instructed through God's word to give to the ministry, realizing that it is a shared ministry. Maranatha Grace is not my church. It is not the pastor's church. It is our church. Those who have covenanted together, this is our church. With that in mind, let us look to God's word, the passage that was just read for us, and consider how we might be rightly motivated to give not merely out of duty, but to learn how to do so with delight and cheerfulness and generously. So looking back at the passage that Colleen read for us in 2 Corinthians 9, we can think about this chapter in, in two parts. Most of your Bibles will even have it headed in two different parts. If you have the little, the little headers for your paragraphs sometimes. In verses 1 through 5, Paul gives very practical advice about collecting an offering from the Corinthians. And this offering is for the benefit of the, the, church, the churches in Jerusalem who were at this time facing persecution and various difficulties. They had great need. And so there is a collection among the churches outside of Jerusalem that are being raised and they're going to bring them to the, the church. And Paul and others are going to bring this gift to the people in Jerusalem. Verses 6 through 15, the rest of the chapter, Paul lays out a theological basis. He, he, gives, he gives some meat of, behind why we ought to give. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk briefly and briskly through the first part, and I think that will help us familiarize ourselves with what's going on in this context because we're jumping in the middle of the book. And then secondly, we'll spend most of our time thinking about the theological basis for giving. So verse 1, Paul writes, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that 
Acacia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul is speaking to the church about this, again, this collection that's going to be taken up for the Jerusalem churches. The churches in Acacia, which Corinth is one of them, desired actually of their own, on their own accord, to take up a collection. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In between these letters, time passed, maybe about a year or so, and Paul um, is now bringing this back up. But in that intervening time, there was also some conflict between Paul and the church in Corinth. And Paul is actually, most of this letter is addressing some of those issues. But now Paul gets back to the gift that they promised to give because the time has come that he's going to now show up in Corinth to collect the gift so that he can bring it back to Jerusalem. So that's just the timeline. But Paul brings it up by not like twisting the knife, guilting. Rather, he does so by boasting. He's like, look, I actually don't need to write anything to you about this, which is funny because he's going to go on and write about it. But he's like, look, it's superfluous. It's unnecessary for me to even write this because you guys desired on your own. This was your idea. In the previous chapter, in chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is boasting about the Macedonian churches. And you can just turn back and you, you see... He begins that, that chapter. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, not their extreme wealth, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, for their own, of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonian churches were struggling. A severe test of affliction. And they said, hey, we want to give. And not just what they could, but they went above and beyond. And Paul actually says their, their desire to give in chapter 9 was spurred by the Corinthian church a year ago saying, we want to be the first to give to those in need. Did you catch that? It's your zeal has stirred them up. How incredible that the churches were so connected that as they heard the testimony of other people, the God, God's work in other people, it, it, it stirred in them a desire to also follow suit. You say, hey, that's what God's doing? Let's have, what, if, what if we trusted God in that way? And that's what's happening. That the Corinthians started this almost beautiful domino effect among the churches in those regions. And so that's why it's superfluous for Paul to write. But he continues. He says, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find, me, find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Paul is sending these men or these brothers as an advanced team. Along with this letter, 
to restart or finish the collection. You can imagine, hey, we want to do this. Time, time goes on. You've made this. You've done this too, right? You, hey, I'm go, I, I promise I'm going to give to this. I promise I'm going to do this. But time goes on, and what happens? Things change. Commitments change. Eh, I'm not as excited as I was before. And Paul's saying, look, we're now coming to collect the, the thing that you promised, and we don't want you to be embarrassed, because we've been talking about how excited you've been, and we don't want to come up and say, look like liars to, th to those from Macedonia who were spurred by your work. So very practically, Paul is organizing co the collection as a w and, and, and is reminding them of what they promised. And he realizes that this can cause some pressure. So verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance the gift or so you can also translate that blessing, you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction, or a gift expecting something in return, or given grudgingly. The gift or the blessing that the Corinthians had promised earlier is, is to be given not grudgingly or reluctantly. Like, I'm a pretty good tipper, all right? I worked in several restaurants. I've been a host. I've been a busboy. I've been a server. I've even I've worked in all aspects. I've even washed dishes. And I, it's hard work to be a server. And it's often very thankless. You're just the help. So I often, when the bill comes, I often like to tip well. But what I can't stand is those little swivel registers when you run the bill and then they turn it around and you say, what's your tip? And they're, then they're staring at you as you have to put the tip in. Or worse, when they put the tip on the bill. You didn't trust me enough to give you more, so now you're going to get a, what you asked for. This is what Paul doesn't want to happen. He's not swiveling the computer around and saying, all right, what are you going to tip now? That's why he's sending an advance team. Hey, get ready, because I want you to give what's in your heart and do so willingly, not as an extraction, exaction, or, uh, or, or giving grudgingly what you just ought to do because I'm, I'm looking at you now. So that's the flow of, the, you know, that's the context. Paul doesn't... You know, that, that's what's going on. This is, this is what's happening. But Paul doesn't leave it there because if he were just to leave it here, it's almost just like he's leaving it right at duty. It's what you ought to do. But Paul always has a deeper motive than just mere duty. And in the verses that follows, in the verses that follow, he supplies this deep, rich theological foundation for the Corinthians to be generous. And I think from these verses, we can pull out some principles for us for what it means to be to give joyfully and in a healthy way. The first thing is this, is that our healthy, joyful giving flows from faith. That's the first one. If you're a note taker, there's the first point. The, 
Our healthy, joyful giving flows from faith. Paul says it bluntly in verse 6. Look at that again. He goes, the point's this. He's not hiding it. He says, hey, here's the main idea. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Crops won't grow where, where you don't plant seeds. Now, <clears throat> for the discerning ear, this might sound like the prosperity gospel. Turn on some late night television preacher and you'll hear this line. God will bless you and make your life better if you first give to this ministry or cause. That's not what Paul is saying. And we know that because he goes on from there. What he means is that we will sow generously when we realize that God is the provider of all that we have. Biblical generosity is not emotional manipulation. God isn't sending out tote bags for your donation. And verse 7 highlights the, the, that it isn't the quantity of one's gift, but rather the state of their heart in giving. He goes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's not like the fake, like, Hobby Lobby sign, a cheerful giver. This is actually a, a joy that springs up from the heart and actually overflows in cheerfulness. God actually doesn't care if you give a dollar in that box or a million dollars. It's rather the state of your heart in the giving. That's where, the, that's where it matters. I don't care either. If you're giving grudgingly, stop. Cheer, giving ought to be a cheerful act. Is giving, whether it's your money, your time, or your talent to another, a cheerful practice for you? Or do you give grudgingly as under compulsion? Okay, I'll give. Your arm's being twisted. Does your generosity flow from gratitude and joy or from guilt? I've spoken to a lot of you in this room, and I've realized many of you feel a cultural pressure to be generous, to give, more than I felt in my cultural background. I was talking to some, it's like, if I'm going to go overseas and visit family, I better bring money. I better bring gifts. That's what it's anticipated. That's what it's expected. That's duty. That isn't joy. So how do we move from being reluctant, grudging, stingy, motivated by guilt, to becoming cheerful? One, we... Again, we do this by remembering God's abundant provisions and grace. We're often reluctant to give because we think we generated our own situation. Let's be honest. Most of the people in this room do very well financially. And I know many of you in this room did not come from wealth. You worked really hard. You put time in to make it where you are in life. That you've kind of carved out this little world where I can relax. 
I'm not putting that down. But if you think that you've done that on your own, you have failed to remember this critical truth. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I'm going to give you the, the New Living Translation because I just think it's much more clear. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why, do you, why boast as though it were not a gift? Your ability to work, your intellect, your situation, your neighborhood, those are all gifts from God that God's given to you. But we often go, I earned that. I'm entitled to that. That's mine. Don't tell me how to use that. But Paul goes, don't you realize that everything is from God? It's as a, it's to, and it's to be received as a gift. For the most part, the Corinthian church, like ours, lived very comfortably. They were wealthy. They had status. They had privilege. In situations of ease, we tend to forget God's daily grace and provision that gives us the ability to work, to live, and have the things that we do. What this means is that a failure to be generous describes a faithlessness that we have, an unbelief. Functionally, it communicates that we don't trust God to provide for us. Hey, God, you can sit this one out. I got this out. I got to that. And because that's the case, we get to determine how we're going to use it, how we're going to give. And this faithlessness, this unbelief, actually leads us to now give grudgingly of our Time, treasure, and talent. I'll come back around to this, but you remember Ebenezer Scrooge? Right? So Ebenezer Scrooge, the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, it's our favorite Christmas movie. We watch it every year. We watch the Muppet ones now with kids. But Ebenezer, in the beginning, oh my goodness, I can't remember the other guy's name. Bob Cratchit. Thanks. That was my wife. So Bob Cratchit, he loves Christmas, and he wants to, he asks if he can have Christmas Day off. And Ebenezer Scrooge is stingy about it. And you you expect me to pay you on this day off for no work? Ebenezer Scrooge is loaded, but he's stingy because he thinks he did it all. Things has all come about by his own. And so he's stingy. He's miserly is the word. But a heart that recognizes God's grace and daily sufficiency is free to be radically generous. Look at verse 8. Notice all the all words in there. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency or contentment in all things, in all times, you may abound in every good work. One of the reasons we're supposed to be a cheerful giver is because God's a cheerful giver. He doesn't, he's not stingy. He gives all grace to abound, that's overflowing, to have all sufficiency, not just enough, and to at all times and in all things for every good work. The person who lives by faith will be generous like the one in Psalm 112 that, that, that we read together. Quoting in verse 9, Paul, um, Paul is actually quoting the psalm that we read. And Psalm 112 is about the person who lives a godly life, the righteous one. And Paul says, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. 
Godly living begins by, by having a healthy fear and trust and a robust trust in the Lord. It's remembering that God is creator and we are creature. And as a result, the one who, who walks with the Lord in, in a reverent fear and a, and, a, and a robust trust will hold the things of this world with an open hand. They, they're not greedy. They will give to the poor, to those in need. And from quoting Psalm 112, Paul begins to quote Isaiah 55 by reminding us that everything comes from God as a gift. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower, and this is Isaiah 55, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The point that Paul is making is this. The generous one lives in faith before God, relying on and seeing all, all things come from his hand. She or he need not hoard or be stingy because God has not been stingy with them. Even more, they give generously because it signals that they know the, the fullness of God's grace. Their generosity, therefore, is an active participation in the goodness of God who supplies the seed in the harvest. Isn't that amazing? God goes, hey, when you act generously, I supply those needs, and what I'm doing is I'm letting you be the extension of my hand to the world. That we actually begin to partake in the very goodness of God in supplying need. As we live generously, God says, I will continue to provide. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to buy your own personal plane, to get your Rolls Royce, to live in a mansion, right? No. Why? That's the prosperity gospel. That's like Creflo dollar stuff. We can talk about that later. That's not why he enriches us. He enriches us to be generous in every way. That's what he goes on to say. That God provides for us that we would continue to live generously. And as we do, what's cultivated is a, is a harvest of righteousness. It is fruit that testifies to the abundance of God's goodness and grace. And that's why it endures. It endures because it, it is God's means to bless others as well. We get to participate in this, and through our generosity, again, we become the hands and feet of God in the world. One of my teachers at, at seminary writes this in, in a commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul calls the attention of the Corinthians to this relationship with God. Just as the psalmist does not gain righteousness by his giving, but gives out of the righteousness that has already been granted to him, so, so too the Corinthians are to give out of the righteousness that is already, already theirs. This righteousness is the righteousness of faith. That is, faith in Christ, who is our righteousness. Our generosity, whether it is giving our time, our talent, our treasure, 
is an act of faith. That's what that means. Faith in God's prior goodness to us as well in his continual goodness to us. Recently, I've been thinking about the difference, I'm not an economist, but uh, the difference between an economy of scarcity and an economy of abundance. Have you guys ever heard those terms before, an economy of scarcity versus an economy of abundance? The economy of scarcity relates to the problem that arises in the gap between limited resources and, limited, and limitless wants. Investopedia, I have no idea the credibility of this source, but this is a good definition. Scarcity, scarcity results in consumers having to make decisions on how to best allocate resources in order to satisfy all basic needs and as many wants as possible. So there's a limited amount of resources with limitless wants, so we have to choose carefully. Makes sense, right? Think about oil, that's why oil is so expensive. We have, we have limited time, so we have to choose. And, and in a lot of ways, this is just how the, the world that we live in, the water that we swim in. Resources are limited, and we must make choices. Well, this is true, I think, that we overcorrect. We prioritize comfort, ease, and luxury. We, cons we consider fulfilling our call to live as Christians last, not first. What we have left over, we give to the Lord, not first fruits. I will share my extra time. I will share my talents as long as there's no one else that can do it. I will hoard and hold with a tight fist the things that the Lord has blessed me with instead of proactively seeking to be generous. An economy of, of abundance is the opposite. We recognize there are more resources than are needed. And so as a result, the difference is apparent. There is, there is an abundance of what, uh, there's abundance, and so we need not be thrifty or miserly. And we see in this passage that the way of joy is living in the economy of a God's abundant grace. As we live gener generously with our time, our talent, our treasure, God promises to enrich us, but not as a get-rich-quick scheme. Rather, we are enriched to continue to live generously, to reflect His generosity. So this not only blesses others, it glorifies God, but it also deepens our own faith and joy in the Lord as we see Him provide time after time after time. A month ago, actually about two months ago now, a dear friend of mine died. His name's Wilton Brown. I have a picture of him. Wilton was a friend in Jamaica. Some of you have met Wilton. He was basically paralyzed from the waist down. He couldn't work. He had limited family. No, no real advocates. He lived in total poverty. Yet Wilton was one of the most content joyful and generous people I have ever met in my life. There are a few times that I remember going to Wilton's little house when I was not given a bag full of fresh fruit from his yard. A man who had close to nothing gave generously. Why? Because he knew God's abundant grace. He saw the Lord's daily provisions he knew scarcity, 
but operated on an economy of God's abundance. That's not like an emotional manipulation story either. God saved Wilton through a short-term mission trip team. And he was radically transformed. And he had a great joy in the Lord. And that's what freed him and and liberated him to, to give so freely. He saw how the Lord provided through the saints. The Lord met his needs. And he could be generous. Look, boundaries, budgets, intentionality are very important. Personally, financially. I'm not saying that we just, you know, become a hippie commune and all pull our money in a big pot. And, but what if we actually lived out of the mindset that was guided by, guided by God's abundant grace? What would that look like practically? I think in prayer it would look like this. That we would start by saying, Lord, how can I be generous today? With whom can I share my time, my abilities, even my treasure? What if we planned in a way that we looked for ways to put God's abundant grace to the test? This would certainly first take us out of our often self-centered world and cause us to look around. We would have to get to know others and their situation. We would have to consider others, what they're experiencing, what they're going through, what their need is. It would make us be aware of the needs of others. It would, I think it would also require us to say, where are we just being exorbitant, lavish, unnecessarily? I waste a lot. How about you? Or I, I dedicate a lot just for me. How about you? But having this mindset actually causes us to look around. I think it would impact our, the way that we interact with one another, our spouses, parents, if you have children with your children. It would change the way that we look at our neighbors, the way that we look at one another. Because, it would, we, because in an economy of scarcity, scarcity, everyone's a risk. That's what one of the dangers of like the, the, the sadnesses of COVID is. The social cure of like wearing masks and social distancing means everyone's a risk to me. That's a problem. That's about scarcity. But if we see God's abundant grace, now we see people as people that are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. How can I honor that? How can I listen to them? How can I share? How can I give my time better? Instead of trying to like, I need to protect this time like Gollum in the ring. How would it impact our financial decisions? Again, our time commitments. Let me ask it this way. What has God given to you? What has he entrusted to you, to me? Pastor Michael is going to be addressing, stepping into our own ministries more next week, but it's important to ask, what is he given? Where are you gifted? What gifts can you share? Whether it's a bag of mangoes like Wilton, 
or organizing a coat drive or for, for those facing cold winters in the, in the weeks ahead. Right before we started service, I got a text message from Joyce Forza, who's one of our supported par ministry partners. He does campus ministry in Z Jersey City. Here's an opportunity. If you're hosting Thanksgiving, he has some international students who need a, a place to celebrate Thanksgiving. If you want to get connected with an international student, open your home, I can connect you with Joey. And that's a great way to say, hey, let other people into my world. Look, we're not obligated to give to every cause or fix every problem. But prioritizing generosity in this way helps us to fashion a plan and a purpose. Not only does it help us to be intentional, but it helps us get excited about the opportunity. Paul says, decide in your heart what you can do and then step into that cheerfully. Sometimes it, this, when, when we have that plan, we're able to say no to these other things without guilt. They're like, hey, God's called me to be generous in this way. I'm going to lean into that. I can't fix, I can't, be, I can't help in that way, but that's okay. I'll pray for it. I point you to some of the can, but this is where God's called me. You see, our, generos our generosity or lack thereof reveals what our hearts trust in. It reveals who we trust in. Healthy and joyful giving is fueled by a vibrant faith in God as our gracious provider. Second, and this is not as long, but our, our second principle is that healthy and joyful giving advances the kingdom of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German theologian and pastor who was executed by the Nazis, he, wrote, he famously wrote this little book called Life Together. And we, a bunch of us have read it in the church, and I highly recommend it. It's a book about the nature of Christian community. In this book, he makes the important part that we do not create Christian community. Community is that buzzword. We want to we create community for people. We don't create Christian community. God does. It is God who created it and now invites us to participate in it. And this, is a, this distinction is significant because it reminds us that our participation within Christian community, both local church, our life together, and then beyond, is a gift to first be received rather than an obligation to fulfill. Christ has purchased his people and then set them within his family by his incredible grace. No one is here by accident, and there are no little people here. Our participation within this community is then empowered by his very strength, his daily mercy, his indwelling spirit, his living word, his daily provisions, his perfect providence to place us with one another, his material blessings, and the ongoing purposes to expand his kingdom we see in this principle is our participation in God's kingdom flows out of what we've received first. And what results then is a giving thanks and a worship. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this, of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, that's, that is, their approval of this service, that's the Jerusalem church receiving the gift. They will glorify God because of your submission or obedience and generosity that comes from, here's the gospel, confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of the contribution for them and for all others. 
Not only were needs met, but hearts were made full. Saints, let me encourage you. God is using you and this little local church to build up the saints here and abroad. I will say, you have been generous as a church. Church, you've been faithful in giving to, su to support the ministries of the church. We have never been not able to pay our bills in order to keep this space. We have not only been, uh, have been able to maintain resources here, but we've also been able to partner with others around the world. Look, we can look at that wall outside right there. Some of you don't even know there's a wall with a map on there. But we can feel disconnected. We can hear the, 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 the missionary of the month reports and feel disconnected. But I want you to see that the work that God is doing in Scotland, in Romania, in Malawi, in Jamaica, in Dubai, is your ministry. It's our ministry as well. The gospel of God's incredible grace is going out through the, to the world through those who we have partnered with for this purpose. God is on the move. As a REACH team, if you want to know more about that, that's the, 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 the missions committee at the church, we're looking at trying to bring in new partners that will serve in J Japan, to Albania, and beyond. Our partners regularly give thanks for your generosity, and they glorify God regularly because of your generosity. And what's happening is th through the meeting of their needs, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed, and others are coming to give thanks to God for, for, their, for God's saving grace. And they then proclaim thanksgiving. And what happens then is that there is this fellowship that we share. You will probably never meet most of the people, the, the saints at Reformation Bible Church in Malawi. You won't. I won't either. But the Lord has linked us together. What's interesting in verse, in verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, obedience, and, and generosity that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. That word contribution, it can also be translated fellowship. And most of you know that word, it's koinonia. Our generosity is an, is, is an expression of our fellowship with one another, our partnership, our, our celebration of God's ordained and established community of believers. We did not create this community. God did. Let's continue then to give of our time and our treasure to bless others as we've been blessed for the glory of God and the good of his people. The only way that we, he's inviting us to join him in it and, and, and we, to do so generously. Lastly, even shorter, healthy, joyful living, uh, giving flows from the gospel of God's grace. We've kind of already talked about it a lot. But just as I, I, I preached a couple weeks ago, is that we love because God first loved us, we give because God first has given to us. Our giving is a response to receiving God's gift, Jesus Christ. The saints glorify God because of 
of the obedience that comes from, did you catch that, of, the, of your confession of the gospel of Christ. It was the good news of the finished work of salvation that Jesus has accomplished that compels the church to give. Again, Mark Seifried says this, the collection is simultaneously a confession of Christ and a meeting of need. In one and the same act, there is receiving and giving. Do you see the feedback loop that's created? As we receive from God, then we give. And then we receive from God and we give. It is this continual process that always flows first from him. We were all cut off due to sin. All were needy. God, with extravagant grace and generosity, did not look away, but instead gave us the gift of his precious son. Not only to live, but to die, that we might know the eternal blessings and joy of his eternal fellowship. Paul, in the previous chapter, writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. Friends, we're about to come to this table, Lord's Supper. This is what this means. Once God's enemies, we've been made friends. Those who were poor beggars have come to the king's table for bread. And he does not push us away, but he says, come, take and eat. This is the turn of the story in Dickens' a Christmas Carol. Ebenezer Scrooge doesn't stay Scrooge. He doesn't, he is transformed in such a way that he, he's not only just gives joyfully what he ought to, but abounds in gift giving and lavish generosity. That's our story. That's the story of Zacchaeus, too. If we have received so much grace and generosity from the Lord, how dare we hold it? Our generosity, our ministry flows out of God's grace towards us. And when the gospel so grips us in this way, it makes, it creates in us a grateful and joyful heart, even in our generosity. And this proper theology reads, leads to proper doxology. And that's verse 15. Doxology just means worship. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. As, as Paul is writing this, he can't help but break out in thanksgiving himself for the gift that God has given. He can't even begin to articulate. He just says, it's too big to put into words right now how gracious and generous and lavish God has been. You see, our work, our witness, is a response to the surpassing grace of God in our lives. This grace has linked us together for the sake of proclaiming the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth and for encouraging one another to do the same. Our generosity, our partnership in this work, in this community of God, is a good metric to measure what we are trusting in, in who we are working for, in what we believe is the work of Christ. What does your generosity say about your heart 
And brothers and sisters, I've been asking myself that question all week. What does my generosity say about my heart? Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church is for us here also. It's a powerful antidote to the hoarding, to the greed, to the self-centered, comfort-seeking, grudging attitude we often hold. It exposes our tendencies and points us to a better way, a way of joyful, healthy generosity not, that is not driven by compulsion, guilt, or manipulation. It comes about this. When we remember all that we have comes from, to us from, as grace from God, and that we can trust God to provide all that we need, which frees us from living with clenched fists, it comes by remembering that God has brought us into his family by grace and allows us to participate with him in his kingdom building work, a work that will endure forever. That's what Pastor Eric was preaching last week. Our labors in the Lord will not be in vain. Lastly, that we remember his inexpressible gift, the inexpressible gift of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Our generosity, then, is a response to God's generosity in our lives. That's what propels us. That's what ought to guide us. And I think when we lean into that, what will happen is not only will we be cheerful givers, but we will testify to the, to the overwhelming, inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your inexpressible gift. I confess I am not often generous. I am certainly, it's easy to forget why we're to be generous. But I pray that you would allow the grace of God to so saturate my heart and our heart that we would be overwhelmed by your, your grace and your gift, and that it would propel us and compel us to be generous, not just so that we could keep the lights on. That's such a small reason. But rather that we would do so to make much of Christ, and that we would welcome others to see, taste and see that you were good, and that they would know the bounty of your grace as well. We pray this in, in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.